Hello, this is Chris Robinson, writer and producer of Forbidden Diary audio drama. I'm excited to have Jim Zobel here with me today. He's the archivist at the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial in Norfolk, Virginia. And we're going to talk about General MacArthur in 1942 and what's going on in and around Natalie Crowder's world in episodes seven and eight that take place January 1st to about mid-March 1942. Welcome, Jim. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for joining me. Before we start, tell me about the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial and your association with it. We are the final resting place of General Douglas MacArthur, as well as his wife, Jean. In 1960, he made a deal with the city of Norfolk to donate all of his artifacts, all of his library, all the papers that he had collected throughout his life to the city of Norfolk. And so it came here in that time period between 1960 and 1964, and General MacArthur died in 1964, and that was really basically the opening of the MacArthur Memorial some uh, 60 years ago now. In that long, we've collected probably five times as much material as came down with General MacArthur's original collection. This is housed in the Nine Gallery Museum, which is in the old City Hall building of Norfolk, which was built in 1850. That, as well as uh, holds the rotunda in which the crypt of General MacArthur and his wife are housed in. And then uh, we have a visitor center that was built in 2014, and we have a separate archives and research center that, as well as an education center that have been established here for over 50 years. And basically that's what our main job is these days is education. We reach some 100,000 or more kids personally every year, and then through internet and outreach, we reach millions. So it's a very vibrant center that we have, and very glad that I was able to land here. And so how did you land there? Uh, I went to the school here. Old Dominion University and the MacArthur archives were right close by and I studied military history and so uh, it made it a very easy jump to come over here every day. So that's basically what it was. And when I graduated, the guy who was the archivist here basically said, you know, I'm leaving, you want my job? And so I sat down in the chair. And you actually know Natalie's son, B.D. Crowder, through your association with the MacArthur Memorial. I met him in 2005. We had a big exhibit for the civilian attorneys here. And he came down here, and I, I remember meeting him and talking to him because I knew about Natalie's book. It was a very famous book. And he brought down about 30 or 40 copies that he had left in the family and donated them here. You know, and we've sold those regularly over the years, probably running down almost to the, the end right now. But I've always felt very fortunate that, you know, I got to meet a lot of these people that, you know, you talk about. And um, I wish I had gotten into the business about 10 years earlier because everybody was still alive. You know, all the older people that were in Santa Tomas. And so basically, I've gotten to notice the, the younger people over the years. Their children and grandchildren. Exactly. I, I spent quite a few days researching at the MacArthur Memorial's library and looking at all these archived prison art, people's letters. I think it's about as close as I can get to being in Natalie's shoes. And that's really quite inspirational. Where did these artifacts come from? Well, the early 1990s, I met a few ladies from... Santa Tomas. And just for the listeners, Santa Tomas was a big civilian prison in Manila, right? Yes. And about six of them came down here and we did oral histories with them. And that was really my initiation into the whole story of the civilian attorneys. I mean, I'd always known about it, but it didn't really come home to me until I met all of them because they were all there and during the war. And to me, it had kind of been, you know, stories and books before that. And once I met them, that made it real to me. And so I got to be real close with a lot of them. Over the years, at least, 
as you've seen, about 40 different families have donated materials here. They keep coming all the time. So I go to all their reunions and I still talk to all these people regularly. So basically that's how it all got here is uh, just contact. What do you consider your most significant artifacts? Well, it's amazing. Uh, the things that, that still come in, uh, the latest donation we had, a, a large collection of artifacts came from Jane Donor, and her, her married name was Fredrickson, but she was taken as a civilian attorney down on Cebu, and then she was moved to Santa Tomas, and their family saved everything. When the nurses who, you know, the U.S. Army nurses that were captured on Corregidor, they all served at Santa Tomas because Japanese didn't know what to do with them. You know, women aren't in the Army, and that was their philosophy, so they put them in the civilian internee camp. And when they left, they got brand new uniforms and they left all the stuff that they had worn throughout camp right there. And so almost every kind of memorabilia they had in the camp, the donors collected everything and somehow got it back to the United States because, you know, people were only allowed to take so much. And so things like that, artwork that people did, toys and stuffed animals they had in which they ate the beans out of the stuffed animals. They were all starving. And so a lot of these things have... Uh, real significance. The the coolest things I like though are when they all left and they all got out, they would write their names on shirts and whatnot and everybody would stitch the name on it. Uh, but things like that are out there. The thing that we do look for is where's that flag? You know, after they got liberated and they hung that flag over the balcony at Santa Tomas, who's got that? Nobody knows. And that's that's the, you know, the holy grail of of, you know, civilian attorney artifacts right there. So, you know, these things are still out there. And so now people can see some of these artifacts because the MacArthur Memorial is opening a military and civilian POW exhibit in September of 2023. What's the exact date? That's going to be September 30th is going to be the, the opening for that. This is probably the only exhibit that will have the story of the military as well as civilian prisoners in the Philippines. We're looking forward to the opening, but it's a very somber occasion, something a lot of people don't really know about. We're going to cover the entire story, and it's just history. It's what it is. So this will open on the 30th of September, Then this will stay up for about two years, and you'll be able to see all those civilian attorney artifacts. Same with the, the, the story of the military prisoners. Are we going to see any of the Baguio internment camp artifacts? Oh, yeah. We'll have many... Many, many artifacts. I don't know if we have any of Natalie's things. You know, Natalie died a long time before I really got into this searching business. I think that we'll have quotes from Natalie because, you know, the book is such a mainstay of what happens up north. I think there will definitely be quotes for her because we'll have quotes throughout of all internees from the various camps. So it's really their words that are telling the story. Where can people get more information about this exhibit and about the MacArthur Memorial? www.macarthurmemorial.org. I think we'll get a lot of a lot of press for it. Oh, I think so. Okay, so let's dig in here. Episode 7 takes place in January of 1942 and it's it's the roughest months, I think, of Natalie's internment in terms of survival. There's no water for a couple of days or so. The sanitary conditions are awful. There's no food. But still, through all of that, most of the prisoners thought that this was just a temporary situation, that the U.S. was going to come in and take back the Philippines. General Douglas MacArthur was a central figure in the Pacific Theater. 
for people who aren't familiar with the Pacific Theater, he was like Eisenhower was later on in Europe. All eyes were turned to MacArthur. Was he thinking the same thing in 1942, that the U.S. would win back the Philippines in a few months? In January of 1942, um, the early part, yeah, that was anything he was working toward was to get the United States supplies to be able to come out to the Philippines. Of course, the U.S. Navy was at the bottom of Pearl Harbor. They were worried about the Russians falling out of the war. This is Washington. They were promising supplies. They were promising to hold the Malay barrier and hold uh, and insert air power in there to have a central air cover that would cover the southern island of Mindanao. They were telling them to build airfields down there for all these things that were coming in. But basically, there was nothing coming in. They had told them since early December that the Philippines would be redeemed. They weren't putting a time frame on it. Carter, of course, had tried to defend on the beaches at the beginning. So, I mean, this was something that was pure folly. Most people understood that. The Filipinos were not trained. And so when the Japanese landed up at Lingayen Gulf in, in later part of December of 1941, uh, they pretty much got mowed over right earlier. There were some good Philippine scout units, some tank units up there, but the ability for them to work together had not played out well. And so this proved the folly of MacArthur's really desire to defend on the beaches. Uh, the Japanese would then land at Legaspi and put a pincer on MacArthur's forces, and he had to go back to the old plan, which was War Plan Orange. And the thing is, is nothing had been done to prepare for this withdrawal into Bataan. Uh, the food stocks had gone forward, the medicines had gone forward, and then those all will be lost. It's a last desperate gamble when they choose to go to War Plan Orange in late December after a few days of trying to hold out that uh, beach activity up to the north, and then they all start piling back into Bataan where they had made plans since the turn of the century, early 1900s, is that's where they would hold out for the U.S. Navy to come. They have to hold Bataan because it has the heights that covers Corregidor. Corregidor is an island fortress in the middle of Manila Bay that can keep out the Japanese naval power. The thing is, is Corregidor was built before air power, and it does not have the ability to defend itself against these high-level Japanese bombers that will come. So in early January, MacArthur is being told that uh, help is coming, whether he believes it, we don't know. He puts out the statement to the troops that help is on the way, planes and ships are coming. Uh, the thing is, if he had signed Roosevelt or Marshall's name to it, that it would have been the truth, because that's what they were telling him. But he puts his name on it. And so that's where it comes from, you know, that all these guys are going to call him Dugout Doug, and you lied to us. A lot of them will realize later that Washington had been turning them on for a little while. Uh, basically, it comes down to early February when they hear the news that all these supplies are going to Russia and they're not coming to the Philippines, that Kazon just erupts. Kazon is who? He's the president of the Philippines. See, MacArthur is very tied in with Kazon. That's, a, that's another thing that can hold great criticism for uh, MacArthur in those early days because Kazon is the president of that country. You know, that's his country, even though it's a Commonwealth of the United States, MacArthur looks at it and he's the, the president. And so in the early days when they go back to War Plan Orange, there's a lot of rice stocks at Cabanatuan, which they could have brought into Bataan. But Kazan does not want that to happen because that is the rice stocks that feeds all the people. And MacArthur agrees to that. Now, any Nazi general, any Japanese general would have taken all that rice into Bataan. Uh, but MacArthur didn't do that. As well, later on, when uh, Japanese artillery really started getting uh, the zero eye on Corregidor, 
MacArthur and Fort Drum, that's the concrete battleship, which is in the middle of Manila Bay, remember the most modern fortress that the Americans and the Filipinos had at that time, they could have leveled all those Japanese artillery places in uh, Cavite, but uh, that would have caused a lot of civilian casualties. And again, Quezon said, no, we're not going to do that. And that's the artillery that eventually just hammers Corregidor to death. So a lot of these moves are made in with Quezon. And so what I'm saying is the tie between them is when it's really shown in February is when all of a sudden these supplies are going to Russia and Quezon just goes crazy. And MacArthur sends this message to Washington where Quezon is, is advancing this neutrality order. And back in Washington, they're, they're like, what is going on out there? You know, but it was all because I think um, of those early days when they were been told all these supplies are coming, you know, we're going to work this situation out. And that it wasn't until that early February timeframe that they, they realized the game is up. And that's when Washington starts figuring out, okay, we have to get Quezon out. We have to get MacArthur out. And that's what leads to their departure in late February and early March. But going back to January, we know that MacArthur is being told these things, but does he believe that they're going to get there? We don't know. Well, why did they lie to him? Or why did they lead him down the garden path? Let's put it more politely. Well, it's a lot of, we hope we can get this to you. We want to get this to you. But they don't put that in there. It's like all this, you know, we have, there was this Pensacola convoy that was on its way to the Philippines when the war started. That gets diverted to Australia. The Navy doesn't want to forward that on because they know they'll get creamed by the Japanese. And so the, the Washington needs MacArthur to hold on. You know, they need the Philippines to, to keep fighting. And it's, it's like, what are you going to do? Just surrender everything? And so that was the thing. They had built it up all this from July to December to be able to put some, up, some kind of defense there. You lost most of your Air Force in the first day of the war. The Navy had left already by late December, and it's basically all these army forces there, and, and you're telling them, yeah, we're going to do everything we can to get there, and when you're a rat in a cage, you'll believe anything. And all these people just can't believe that America would leave them out there on the loop. It's not so much that America left them out there on the loop. You know, they got, like I said, they got hammered at Pearl, but the way that they all looked at it is we just got... You know, they sent thousands and thousands of troops out there right before the war, and, and now they're just all going to get surrendered. So, I mean, it's, it's – and the thing is, is if MacArthur wasn't there, that defense would have collapsed immediately. He's the only one that's holding that thing together. And, you know, when he says uh, troops are on the way, they believe it. Yeah, yeah. He had deep, deep connections in the Philippines, so it was personal with oh, him. Definitely. Going back to his father, wasn't his father? Um, yeah, a... he was military governor there during the, the Spanish-American War. Yeah, and his his mom dies there. His son's born there. He courts his wife there. I mean, Manila's home to him. It is. So now we know why MacArthur raises the white flag on December 26th, just 18 days after the first bombing in Manila. I kind of want to do a where's Doug. Yeah. So pre-invasion, MacArthur and his family lived in the penthouse in the Manila Hotel. Right. And then after Manila is declared an open city, is he still there? They leave for Corregidor on uh, Christmas Eve. So about three days after the landings on the 19th, MacArthur realizes they're, they're not going to be able to hold him. And so they start going back to these static defensive lines. But he knows he's got to declare 
Manila Open City. He had thought it a couple of weeks earlier, and you know that they were going to have to go back to work playing Orange. But he waited for that, you know, to see what happened on the beach. But it was obvious that you know all these untrained Filipinos weren't going to be able to do. What it. was Plan Orange? Plan Orange was if the Japanese invade, you go back to the Bataan Peninsula, you hold Bataan because that has the heights that control Corregidor, and you keep the Japanese out of Manila Bay until the United States Navy can come and rescue you. That was the plan, but the Navy wasn't coming. And like I said, air power had changed the whole balance of warfare forever. Well, let's talk about Corregidor. So it's, they use, they called it the rock. So that is this fortress in Manila Bay and it has tunnels. It's a huge garrison, isn't it? Yes. It's an outdated military post. It has large caliber guns, 10 inch disappearing rifles, 12, you know, a couple of maybe two modern 12 inches, but they're all out in the open. There's only, I think, battery manja is a covered battery, and that's, that's about it. Everything else is wide out in the open. And they're all basically geared towards the ocean, you know, because it's a, it's a sea defensive barrier, and you've got things that can hit Bataan, but not everywhere. And during the 1920s, when they had all those Washington and London naval treaties, and they restricted everybody building certain navies, one of the things that the Americans were not allowed to do was reinforce those defenses in the Pacific. And so they weren't allowed to build new fortifications on Corregidor. And the United States wasn't allowed to put in money. However, in the 1930s, one of the, the Philippine department commanders got around that and built this giant tunnel in the middle of it in Malinta Hill called Malinta Tunnel. And so that's where the big headquarters was, the hospital was. And when Corregidor was just getting hammered by Air power and artillery, that's where everybody goes, is into that, into that tunnel. So when MacArthur's leave on Christmas Eve, the Kazan government goes with them, and the safety headquarters all goes to Corregidor and sets up there in that tunnel. How many people are we talking about? Hundreds of people. And so Corregidor has a garrison of maybe about nine, ten thousand people, and you've added about another couple of thousand people here. So it's getting to be pretty crowded. MacArthur and his family move up topside. There's three areas. There's topside, middle side, and bottom side of Corregidor. It's this, about a three-mile-long island, and it has about a mile and a half wide. It has a very high cliff topside. And they lived up there, and the first bombing raid, December 26th, they, the house they were in got blown up. And so they moved down to uh, another house uh, down on the eastern side of the island, and MacArthur lived there the whole time. Gene and Arthur would stay in the tunnel at night usually, but MacArthur would, would stay in that house and, and, until like the last few days when, when artillery got, got really bad right before they, they got pulled out. President Kazan was there too, right? Right, yeah. He's in there, very bad tuberculosis. They have his re-inauguration just outside the tunnels. It's a obsolete fortress. It's a, where all the, the main radio connections with Washington are now. So that is the central heart and pulse of all the defense that's going on in the Philippines as the Japanese are starting to move through the island. So by the end of January 42, was America holding any of its Commonwealth territory to the Philippines at all? They are still uh, in control of Bataan. They have fought the Japanese pretty much to a standstill come about mid-February because the Japanese had removed some troops early on after they took Manila, which they saw as the prize instead of the army that was on Bataan. And so then the Americans and the Filipinos fought them tenaciously for the, those first month and a half, basically. 
And then there's also a resistance going on down on Mindanao, down on Cebu, down on Negros, Panay. But these are people that are pulling back, pulling up into the hills because the, the Japanese just have, you know, without air power, the, the Americans are, are just at the, at the whim of, of the Japanese. They become ensconced on Bataan by, by early January, January 7th. They're all inside Bataan. And so now I want to shift gears and talk a little bit about the Japanese takeover of the Philippines. And you touched on that, but I want to ask a couple more questions. You know, it's really clear from Natalie's diary that the Japanese are, you know, they're taking over the running of the Philippine cities and towns like Baguio. Right. Was Baguio a significant place? Wasn't it the summer capital? Yeah, it's the summer capital of the Philippines. It also has an a army contingent there at Camp John Hay. As well as some uh, 26 cavalry Philippine scout units got separated up there after the after the invasion. They didn't get down to Bataan. They moved up to Baguio. Baguio as well is is very in close proximity to the invasion beaches. All they had to do was go, I think, from uh, Rosario up the up the heights to Baguio, and they seized that very early. Like I think, like right around Christmas. And then you know they throw Natalie and the rest of them uh, first at Brent School and then to you know Camp John Hay. But yes, they come in, they take over everything. People there talk about Japanese that worked there in the city were then working for the Japanese army. So that's basically the way it's going to go. And you always wonder, you know, if, if the if the Japanese had not gone in and just started slapping everybody around, uh, chaining people up to lampposts, you know, what would have happened? But that stuff starts happening immediately. To Filipinos, you know, to anybody. That's the deal breaker from the beginning. Did the uh, Imperial Army plan for how to take over the day-to-day running in the Philippines and on the thousands of soldiers and civilians they would imprison? Did they just figure, well, you know, we'll just use the same operating procedures we used over in China and Korea? Or was the Philippines different? You know, they prepare to go in there. You know, they print money like they do for all these places that they're going to go into. They've, they've got structures of, of what they're going to do. It's different in a sense of, you know, with the military is with the civilians. But the Japanese are establishing order. They're Asia for the Asians. They're going to be in control of it. And like I said, they show up in the capital, and if you don't bow, even to the lowliest private, you're getting slapped around. And, you know, people that resist, you know, like... The Japanese, you know, hey, I like that car. That's mine now. I like that house. That's mine now. We're taking all of this. And that's not all of them, but it's a preponderance of them. And that sets the tone for everything immediately. And that's why later on you're going to have all this guerrilla resistance easily crop up all over the Philippines. But that's what I was saying. You know, what would have happened if it really was, let's spread the greater East co-prosperity sphere, you know, which was what they told all these new colonies that they have that they were going to do. But it really wasn't that way. It was we're in control and we're going to do what basically whatever we want. And that was just the mindset of that time. You know, it's 80 years ago. It's what was, you know, it's just history. People have analyzed every, every bit of it, you know, every psychological reason for it over the years. But that was the time frame and that was their mind frame. Yep. And the redistribution of wealth was one of the first things they did. They took over the banks. Natalie wrote that they got wealthy Japanese businessmen to draw straws to take over the business. Commerce still had to take place. Crops still had to be grown. So I'm assuming this was done with the blessing of the imperial army. Oh, sure. When the surrender does come, you know, they don't expect as many as they're going to be. As far as like being prepared, 
they have plans for these things, but say like, oh, we've planned for 25,000 surrenders. We've got 80,000. They don't change the plan. Plan stays the same. So it's like if you go into an area and we're going to do this, but circumstances are totally different from the plan, they don't change the plan. It stays the same. So it's it's neglect. It's not caring. It's like that's the way life is. There is the Imperial Japanese Army, and then they take precedence over Japanese civilians, of course, the Filipinos, the Igaras, the Chinese. I mean, they take precedent over every, it doesn't really matter. Even the lowliest soldier does not mess with the Japanese army. I mean, it was a very brutal military structure. They were not kind to the foot soldiers. It goes from top down. General slaps the colonel, the colonel slaps the captain, and it goes down to the lowliest soldier. And who do I have to slap? Well, prisoners and civilians. That's where it goes. There's tons of stories of Japanese doing great acts of kindness but it's not the preponderance. The Japanese civilians um, were very much, at least the guards, were very much a part of Natalie's life in prison. They were also left destitute as well. Or was that not the case? That's the way it becomes for everyone. You get uh, towards the, the later days, uh, nobody's in a good position. How did the shift from Americans to Japanese being in charge affect the Filipinos? They want the Americans back. That's the main thing that really ticks off the Japanese. They can't understand why the Filipinos have this attachment to the colonials. We have a lot of Philippine guerrilla propaganda posters they all made. And it's right start. There's, you know... We know that the aid is coming from the United States. Do you want to sit there and, and live under tyranny and oppression? And, you know, when we know if we hold out, we're going to have the better days back again. And that's the way they looked at it. It goes back to that. It was a stark, drastic change from American Commonwealth to Japanese puppet state. The Japanese come in that city. You're seeing people chained up to lampposts. Everybody's getting slapped around. Yeah, it's it's not a safe place to walk around. It's immediate, and everybody knows it. September, October, you've got guerrilla uprisings on, on almost all the islands. And that's only, what, five months? They're not just Americans uprising. It's all, it's all Filipinos. They've had enough already. And the Igorots sounded like they just went back up to the mountains. You've got all the... The Ifugao people that are up there in the northern area, in the Cordillera and whatnot, up up north of Baguio. And then the Igorot that did help with the, you know, the Bataan defense. Uh, there's a very famous episodes with them. But yes, I think a lot of those people, the Eta, you know, that are up near Bamban, they all do go back. But a lot of people do. You know, a lot of Filipinos leave Manila. They go try to go live in the country, you know, just to stay away from the Japanese. Eventually, it'll come down to food. You know, once the Japanese take over, those rice shipments from Thailand stop. And that's the main bedbasket of the Philippines. You know, they don't grow enough rice for themselves in the Philippines. It goes from Thailand. And so those, the, they're going to start getting hungry real quick, especially when the Japanese turn all the Panay rice areas in trying to grow cotton. You know, and that's going to be a big fiasco that's going to cause even more starvation. So it's a it's going to be a bad scene all the way around. These people trying to live out in the woods and, you know, the, the native, you know, Ifugao and, the, and like you said, the Igorot, they're, they'll be fine. 
you know, because they can live on anything and they'll live up in the, in the woods and the Japanese don't want to go after them. They do not want to go in the woods looking for people. I, I don't know if I would either. So by the end of episode eight, the prisoners hear about the fall of Singapore, February 15. But in prison, they're sheltered by news. So they're still thinking that their situation is temporary and they're enjoying discussing MacArthur's schools of thought. But the, uh, the prisoner's optimism is soon squelched by the fall of Batan and Corregidor. And that's what happens in the next two episodes. So we're going to talk about that in the next interview with Jim Sobel of the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial in Norfolk, Virginia. And I can't emphasize enough how great this museum is. When, Jim, when you talked about Natalie or Fred Crowder, who's Beatty, donating all of those books, I got one of his books. And that's how I found out about all of this. I was visiting the MacArthur Memorial and I didn't know that. I didn't know that, that um, Fred had donated those books. So that's really fun to know that. But I can't emphasize how great, what a gem this museum is. So if you're in the area, be sure to visit it. And also the POW exhibit, which sounds absolutely fascinating. And again, what is the website um, so people can find out more information about that, Jim? Yes, it's www.macarthurmemorial.org. O-R-G. Okay, well, thanks again, Jim. We'll see you or be talking to you after episode 10. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Be sure to tune in for the next episode of Forbidden Diary. <laughs> <laughs>